Well, good afternoon. Um, I'm very delighted that we've, most of the seats are, are taken. Uh, I was a bit <laughs> fearful that people would have forgotten about MFS or what it was, and, um, and that we'd have a, a small audience. But uh, this, is, this is really good to see that there's an interest in what was 10 years ago, uh, taking up a, a big part of mine and others' lives. So, Manual for Streets. <coughs> there it is. You can tell that I still use it because there's some, uh, there's some post-its on there. Yeah. It was issued... Uh, roughly 10 years ago, to great press acclaim. At least the professional press gave it some quite nice uh, reviews. <clears throat> so I must say, at, at that time, I was a good deal less nervous talking about it uh, in this very room, in fact, um, than I am today. And that's because I'm very conscious of the fact that many people will have different experiences of how it's worked out in practice. 10 years ago, we kind of assumed that it was, of course, going to have to make a major impact on uh, the, um, the practice of designing streets around the country. But no doubt, you know, it'd be interesting to download what's in each of your minds about the impact that it's had. <coughs> As Colin has already said, Manual for Streets replaced, or at least was supposed to have replaced, uh, Design Bulletin 32 which was interesting. Design Bulletin 32 was also endorsed by the Environment Ministry as well as the Transport and Traffic Ministry. Um, but to look at the content of DB32, you might have been forgiven for wondering why the Department of the Environment had put their name to it, because it was primarily an engineering standards document. Whereas Manual for Streets, by contrast, although there is some highway engineering aspects to it, is much more demanding of a context-sensitive design and the idea of using your noddle uh, to create good design rather than sticking to rigid geometric standards. Colin has already spoken about uh, the objectives of Manual for Streets and one of the things which perhaps people may not be so familiar with was that there was uh, encouragement and uh, confidence given to those who were charged with the task of producing it. Um, the confidence was given by the fact that there was some pretty solid research, in particular by the Transport and Road Research Laboratory, um, which really... Um, undermined a lot of what en traffic engineers or highway engineers were using in defense of DB32. And I've mentioned a few there. <coughs> sort of... <coughs> I think that's quite right. <laughs> the, the, um, the stopping distances required or thought to be required at the approach to junctions, visibility displays and the need for those um, the safety of connected networks as opposed to the loops and lollipops uh, type of layouts and also the issue of whether you, you know, at what point you were not allowed to have a direct access, vehicle access onto a street. 
Um, there was also uh, research which showed that the, the fears that highway engineers often have of litigation uh, should they, you know, should a, a bad result happen and then they'd be guilty of um, malpractice in their, in their designs. Um, all of these things were seen to be greatly overplayed and mostly unfounded. So this meant that it freed up Manual for Streets to get away from that um, very technical engineering aspect and start to address um, the better balance between the needs of movement and the needs of uh, places. So you could summarize that really by saying that Manual for Streets represented a shift from roads planning or highways planning to uh, the planning of streets. The word street has connotations much more of um, places where uh, people uh, live. From highway engineering to placemaking. So away from rigid engineering standards, away from also away from the road hierarchy approach which had been advocated in traffic in towns by Buchanan uh, back in 1963 and which uh, had pretty much dominated thinking about uh, master planning and, and, and road layouts in that, in that time which was basically to exclude through traffic from an area defined by major roads around the perimeter and that led to the, the development of so-called distributor roads or collector roads um, which were a, a pretty unpleasant feature of much of uh, the development that occurred in the 60s, 70s through 80s and, and as we've just seen from Colin still going on today in some places. Um, yeah, so there was also a shift and this was partly as a result of the move towards traffic calming approaches but the idea was that the traffic wasn't necessarily bad to have around, it's just bad to have around if it's going too fast. And so the idea of compatible speeds uh, as a way of resolving the conflict between place and movement um, <clears throat> was, was now gaining currency um, in the Manual for Streets um, era. And there was certainly a motivation, people like myself, and, and I'm sure Andy Cameron and and others of us on the team, we didn't like the idea of these traffic roads and having front, no frontage development and therefore no life or no, no active frontage, no uh, appeal for those except in, in cars. So what has been achieved in the 10 years since Manual for Streets was published? Well, uh, the, pu the publication date coincided more or less with the onset of the, the economic crash. And um, certainly most of the work that I've been involved with up to 2007, um, particularly in Northern Ireland, uh, suddenly ground to a halt. And the companies I've been working with, um, in some cases, uh, went to the wall. And so uh, there was a big pause in slowdown in building activity for the first few years of Manual for Streets. So it was really unfortunate that we didn't get the chance uh, to develop, um, and, you know, for the policies and ideas to mature in practice um, during its early years. And maybe if 
as we've seen with the survey, if there are people that don't use it, maybe that's partly uh, the reason. You know, by the time the development was picking up, maybe there was other ideas um, overtaking Manual for Streets. But anyway, the document has survived. You can still download it from the government website. And when so much planning guidance has been thrown into the bin, uh, it's an achievement, I think, that it's, it's survived. Many local authorities um, recognise its key messages, or at least they espouse them in their documents. Um, and uh, many local authorities have produced supplementary guides which openly, you know, specifically acknowledge that they are you know, add-ons to manual for streets. And these deal with things like local vernacular or local landscaping requirements and more detailed design, perhaps some materials, palette, and that kind of thing. So it's as if you know, manual for streets is the base, and then local authorities, in many cases, feel they need extra guidance on, on those detailed aspects. Evidence of better layouts. Well, uh, I think there is evidence of better layouts, and rather less of those piggledy, piggledy tortuous streets, roads, um, which walking around makes you feel seasick, and you need a sat-nav to get out of the estate. Um, we're seeing, I would argue, perhaps less of that than was the case uh, in the in the noughties. Um, and I think one of the, as I say, I haven't been involved so much in recent years in detailed design of local streets, but one of the things that I have observed is that the so-called distributor roads or collector roads are no longer um, those soulless events um, that we saw before, and many of them are being built out with proper frontages and in some cases, mixed use, and I'll give a few examples in a minute. But uh, the new streets are unfortunately often still dominated by cars. And parking, I have to say, it remains a huge issue. Pedestrian provision is not dealt with in the way that it should be. Manual for Streets is very specific that in the different modes of movement, pedestrians should be considered first in the design process. And that simply, I think, is, is mostly not happening. Or if it's happening, it's not, what's required of that is, is not fully understood. Public transport is often neglected. Manual for Streets doesn't have an awful lot to say about public transport, but the integration of public transport into uh, housing layouts and designs is, is crucial if we want to aspire to low car ownership and use. Um, I might just give a plug, if I may. Um, I've spent the last um, so many months um, writing bus planning guidelines for the Chartered Institute of Highways and Transportation, and that's due to be published in January. So please look out for that, and hopefully this uh, does all that Manual for Streets might have done and didn't as regards integrating bus services into new developments. Um, and uh, when we go out and look at the final point there, 
when I go and look at new developments, it's often the details that really um, let the thing down. Quite, quite apart from any structural problems of an estate, uh, it's often what, what you're looking at at the, at the local, the very detailed level which lets the thing down. <coughs> so, uh, move on to a few examples. I mean, here's um, what I would describe as a bad use of space. I'm not going to tell you people why I think it's a bad use of space because it'll be fairly obvious to you. That's a pre-manual streets scheme. And that, I would say, is a much better use of space, but it's also pre-manual for streets. So um, when we see good designs, we have to bear in mind that manual for streets may or may not have had any hand in it. It was perfectly possible. In fact, many of the good examples that are still used today in terms of good street design do actually predate manual for streets. In fact, we, we picked up on those uh, in order to, to generate the ideas for manual for streets. Um, this scheme has already been shown by Colin in Cambridge. I think that kind of scheme is remarkable, not because it's post-manual for streets, but because there's hardly anything of that ilk uh, in Britain. Um, proper streets, you know, rectilinear design, which is easily navigable and readable. Also, an interesting question, which I only really pondered when I asked to, asked to do this talk. Um, to what extent has Manual for Streets influenced the regeneration of, of old areas, traditional existing uh, urban areas? And this sort of uh, junction treatment and build-outs and the parking bays and planting and so on, <coughs> which has been going on across London in other cities as well. Really transformational at the local level, but uh, whether it was just something which was happening anyway or whether Manual for Streets had an influence, I'm afraid I can't really say. But um, let's give three cheers for that kind of work which has been going on. <coughs> this is uh, Poundbury, um, which I'll, I'll skip across because I expect Andy will want to say something about that. Um, now, I mentioned about the demise of the ugly distributor road, and here was one example I came across on my way to my uh, holiday destination a few months ago. Um, Cranbrook Estate in Exeter. This is a distributor road, but it's, it's a proper street. It's got frontage development. <coughs> it's, got, uh, it's got parking bays. It's got a planted strip. Okay, a bit of a maintenance burden for those patches of grass, but, you know, compared with what was being done 20 years ago, I would say, you know, it's also a bus route. Um, pretty good result. Uh, unfortunately, you come off that distributor road and you're then into something like this, um, which is pretty grim. This, the, the usual um, parking on the footways, um, which seem you can virtually, when you look at photographs, Taxi! When you look at a photograph of a residential street, you can say almost immediately whether it's in London or somewhere else in the country. In London, you don't get 
parked on the footway. Everywhere else in Britain seems to be that's standard practice. Um, there is a little sign there you can see, which I've enlarged for you. It says, pedestrians, please keep to footpath. Yeah, well, that would be nice if we could. Um, but also, strangely, a 10 mile an hour speed limit. So why would you need the distinction between a footpath and a, and a, and a, and a street? So, anyway, as I say, so a single estate with good and bad within the same framework. Um, Milton Keynes is an interesting one. Uh, politically, uh, they wanted to do away with the idea of the great street, so-called great street. Um, they wanted to revert to the major grid of main roads with little pockets of inaccessible residential developments within the grid. And I fought against that in the western expansion area. <coughs> and um, was it Locks, I think, David Locke? Uh, produce the eastern expansion area. I am right, thank you. <laughs> um, and well, both of us were saying, you know, the old, the old original grid of Milton Keynes doesn't work from from many points of view, and the main streets needed to be proper streets. So here's the one in the eastern expansion area, and the one in the western expansion area has survived. I had political battles um, up there, but I. But fortunately, outline consent had already been granted, so it's going to go ahead and it's being bailed out at the moment. Ten years too late because of the recession, but it's, it's being built. But there we go again, same eastern expansion area uh, with all the problems um, at, the, at the local street level. And even worse, this corner, you, looking at that, you wouldn't think Manual Streets had ever been written. No, not even drop curbs. And uh, yeah, raised carriageway, but it starts a way back, um, not satisfying the pedestrian desire line across the mouth of the junction. So um, yeah, not good. Um, this is the bridge development in Dartford. In many ways, uh, an interesting development, not least because it's a public transport oriented development. Um, but whoever designed it, designed a separate footway network, footpath network, you might say that that's good, but the highway engineers have interpreted, oh well the pedestrians are all on the, foot, foot, on the footpaths, so we don't need to bother with them. And as you can see, they've planted right across the, the crossing desire line. <clears throat> so where do we go from here? A new manual for streets, well maybe not a manual for streets, it'd have to be called something else. But there's a number of things which I feel, it, were, it, were we to produce a similar kind of document now, a number of things which I think uh, I would want to see happen. First, I would like to see it engage more with the, with the land use context of, of the street. We tend, to be, we tend, I suppose, in manual streets to assume what kind of development was going to occur, but does it have to be monolithic housing? Could it be more mixed? Uh, what's the density? And what's the impact of different densities on, on the street design? I think also uh, a new document could more actively promote uh, public transport and hopefully the CIHT bus planning guidelines um, will, will fill that particular gap. 
I also feel, and this was something which uh, annoyed me at the time when I was a member of the Manual of the Streets team, I thought there's all this wonderful practice you can go and visit in our close neighbours across the channel. Um, but the, the departments were pretty adamant that they didn't want foreign examples because they thought they would, not because they necessarily thought it was a bad idea, but they feared that the audience for Manual for Streets at the local level would, would say, oh, that's all foreign rubbish, we don't want any of that. Um, it's, not, it's not British. Um, so there, there were, I think there are no foreign examples in Manual for Streets. Um, I feel it's time, you know, now that we're leaving Europe, we can afford to take a better look at it. <laughs> um, also, at the time, there is a mention of shared space in Manual for Streets, but it was recognised that it was right, you know, it was a hot issue at that time, and it wasn't felt that there was sufficient experience or, um, you know, solid research to be able to talk definitively about shared space. So um, I think now we have a lot more experience with many schemes we could point to. So a new guide uh, should be able to um, take a much stronger position on that particular issue. However, um, I, I think I would hesitate before commissioning a new manual for streets. My feeling is that there are bigger problems that we have to, to tackle. and and that the, a lot of the problems of transport and placemaking actually are, are ones which design, urban design itself cannot solve. So I would say we need to reduce the car, car domination and car dependency, um, find ways of doing that uh, so that the total volume, the stock of vehicles and the, and the extent of mileage driven by vehicles, we need really desperately to reduce that, not just for these uh, urban placemaking reasons, but for you know, pollution and road safety and other reasons. So in, in other words, we need to do that, and that would reset the context within which we can then design streets. And a lot of the problems that we see in the, you know, the best, best intentions of street designers often currently undermined by particularly parking issues, um, we could tackle it in that broader way and that would make the design task easier. So that would take us into fiscal and regulatory reform, um, road pricing for example, but also perhaps issues like um, priorities on, on, the, on the streets. Um, I still lament the fact that um, elsewhere in Europe uh, priority to, is from the side and uh, that enables you to reduce signs and, uh, and speed reducing measures at junctions because the default priority is from the side. So when you're approaching a junction you have to slow down because of the uh, risk of a vehicle emerging from the side. In, on the continent to the right, for us it would be from the left of course. So um, a number of things could be done. Uh, so finally, um, a couple of foreign examples. I, I often look at this picture and I think it's so effortless what they've done. It's so straightforward. It's effortless. It's just a it's just a humble Dutch town, um, but you know it's uh, 
it works. We would agonize to do anything like that. Um, similarly, but with a more modern aesthetic, uh, an example here from Montpellier. Um, I suppose I have a personal preference for a more modern aesthetic. And much as I like Poundbury, I, I don't like this idea that we're just building mini Poundbury's everywhere, harking back to some assumed golden age. Uh, I would like to see architecture given uh, you know, a, a, greater, uh, a greater task, the more modern aesthetic. So um, that's, a, that's a personal thing. Thank you very much. <laughs>